Hello and welcome to A Day in the Life podcast. I'm your host, Kim Eason. Today I wanted to talk to you about skill building versus supporting or doing with versus doing for. There is often some debate about whether doing for is better than doing with, upskilling, taking over or supporting. I believe that in different circumstances, both doing with and doing for are relevant for a person. Let's think about a rough definition for each. Doing for assumes that either a worker is taking over in a situation and not giving a person a chance to do something for themselves, or that a person wants a worker to do something because it may make things easier. There may be other circumstances, but let's go with these two for the purpose of this podcast. Then there's doing with, which assumes that the person may be learning a new skill or looking at expanding a skill. And the worker and the person do the task together. So that person either maintains or learns new skills to incorporate into their day. There's also doing on behalf of. And this is where a person has identified or has had identified that they don't have the capacity to undertake a task on their own. Things like advocacy, financial management, guardianship, etc. The worker, advocate or guardian are there to help ensure that the person has what they require for their life and are heard. Let's dive a little deeper. For the past two decades, I've seen a shift from doing for, think institutions where people weren't able to do things for themselves, to more of a doing model where people get to try new things, build new skills and grow as a person. I personally have enjoyed seeing the change from taking over to skill building and maintaining skills. I've prided myself in promoting choice and providing opportunities for people to speak their mind and do things that they would like to do. But in the last two years, I've had some energetic conversations around this very topic. I think some people confuse restorative care with day-to-day support. The purpose of restorative care is to maintain a person's highest level of physical, mental and psychosocial function in order to prevent declines that impact on quality of life, which is great, but does this information restrict our thinking? I think in some cases, yes. Here's an example for you. I know a lady, let's call her Sarah, who struggles to undertake household chores. Her NDIS plan covers in-home support to help her maintain her home. Support workers are employed to go into the home under the line item of domestic assistance to clean and help her take care of her home. The problem is, though, that Sarah physically struggles to do any of this and the workers are telling her that their company policy is not to do it for her. The workers then proceed to watch her struggle around her home for four hours cleaning. The worker gets to go home and gets paid to watch, but the person who needed the support is left exhausted and can't physically now go to do her groceries or to meet her family or go to dinner or even cook for herself because all of her energy has gone on tasks that she thought the workers were there to help her with. The questions that pop into my head are these. Is this what organisations are telling their staff? Or is this the worker who wants to get paid but doesn't want to do the work? Or... Is it that they think that it is better that the person learns to do things for themselves, but they don't realise the impact that it has on that person? I'd like to think it was the latter. My brother, as you know, has Down syndrome, and his body is ageing rapidly. With the extra medical conditions he has been presented with over his lifetime, mobility is not going so well. 
and I could sit back and I could blame his workers for not making him do things for himself or encouraging him to make his bed or use his walking frame instead of using his wheelchair to go to the bathroom. I could have a go at the staff who bring his cupboard to his room instead of forcing him to go to the kitchen to make it himself. But this is something that I would never do. I see what he needs and instead help him to choose what he needs. Some days, more often than he'd like, it takes Pete 45 minutes to get himself from his bedroom to the bathroom. Now during this time he's tried four times to stand up from his chair or bed, his hips and knees have ached or pained twice, his anxiety is through the roof as he worries about falling or have an accident before he gets to the toilet. And then there's the pivot to go from his walking frame to the toilet seat has a risk of falling or even misjudging where the seat is and his muscles in his legs don't allow for a soft landing when sitting. By the end of the 45 minutes he is so tired and so cranky that he now has no energy left for other meaningful things like going to his day program or making his breakfast or even getting himself onto the bus because all of this has taken its toll on him. Doing with allows Pete to choose the tasks that he can do and help him with the rest. Ask yourself, why is he not wanting to walk? Why is he not wanting to make his own cuppa? And then ask him those questions. Is it because he wants to watch Home and Away instead? Is it because he knows he's feeling unsteady today and he doesn't want to risk falling? Or does he not want to do something because he doesn't know how? Learning to read the signals allows you to respond appropriately. For Pete, it could be a matter of approaching him 30 minutes before Home and Away and saying, Hey Pete, Home and Away will be on soon. Do you want to come and make a cuppa to drink while you watch Home and Away? Or, Hey Pete, how's those sea legs today? Are they working enough to walk to the bathroom? This way you've acknowledged the reason behind what stops him from doing something and you're giving him the choices to his next actions. Now, Pete really loves his art and he has an amazing art therapist who works with him to create beautiful pieces of artwork. I've actually commissioned him to paint for me, so that's been really lovely to have those hanging in my home. By doing this with Pete, she allows him to be as creative as he wants to be. She might give him hints or tips on how to do a particular brush stroke to get like different effects, or she might pour the paint into a tray for him to use because he's unable to lift and pour from heavy bottles. But she encourages him and she works hand over hand to build those skills for him. She does for him the things that he asks her to do, which usually are the things that he can't physically do himself. I have over the years had many clients who are able to feed themselves, but I've also seen stuff take over because it's too messy and they have to clean up after them, or they say it takes too long, so they took over because it was quicker. In this instance, it would be great if the staff could have just allowed the person to feed themselves, regardless of the so-called mess or the time it takes, and then offer to help them clean up after. If the person looks like they are struggling, an offer could be made to help in whatever way that suited the person, but just taking over because they might make a mess is not doing the person any favours. How will that person be able to feed themselves down the track? How will their fine and gross motor skills be enhanced? And then this impacts on other physical activities they need to undertake. The same premise applies to if a person's cooking, or they're doing cleaning, or they're hanging washing on the line. Don't just take over. Ask them what they need support with. The bottom line is that we need to pick the battles. 
Sometimes doing for someone helps them to do the bigger and more meaningful things in their life. It doesn't mean you have to take over everything and do everything for a person. It means you have to ask, discuss, and then think about what it is that the person really wants and needs. Let me put this into perspective for you. Let's say you've done a full day of physical tasks. Your body aches, your head pounds, you're emotionally drained, and all you want to do is curl up on the lounge or in bed and binge watch a favourite TV show. And more often than not, you do. Afterwards, whether that's later that night or the next day, you're a bit more refreshed and you're able to do more meaningful things in your life. It's the same for those who have some challenges in their day and getting things done. Sometimes you coming in to do household tasks is helping far more than you realize. Sometimes you may only need to do half of it because the person is able to do more. In Sarah's case, she may be able to do smaller parts of the task while you undertake the remainder. Then this will allow Sarah to do more for herself in the long run. More meaningful tasks, more meaningful connections with people, more meaningful physical movement. Whilst the worker is working with Sarah, they could have conversations. The conversations might bring out more information or goals or details to understand her better and create ways to benefit her even more. Sometimes doing for is doing with, as long as you're not taking over and you reach an agreement as to what you could or should be doing rather than you just taking over and not allowing the person choice. Let's look at some real life examples. Billy is a 60-year-old man who grew up in an institution. From the time he was two years old until he turned 50, everything he had was locked away. He had no access to personal belongings, food was rationed and served to them when they were told it was going to be served, sleeping quarters were cleaned daily without notice, he had people doing for him because that's the way it was back in those days. Then he moved into a group home. He gained some freedom. He got to choose his bedding, his clothes, his food. Uh, he got to choose his smokes and suddenly smokes were available to him all the time. Money was also available. He even got to go out shopping. Staff would take him every day to go to the bank, do his shopping with him, buy his smokes and buy his lunch. Now every week, lunch was a cheese and tomato sandwich on white bread cut in a singular line to form two triangles and a can of coke. Smokes ended up being rationed because he would smoke his week's worth in a day. Staff would come in and help him learn how to tidy his room, teach him how to wash his sheets and clothes and how to budget his money. And over time, he learned how to ration his own smokes and clean his own room and make his own meals. Day by day, he grew. He learnt more skills. It wasn't easy. Billy would often resist, but with time, he learnt that he liked doing things with different staff rather than staff doing it for him. The biggest breakthrough for Billy was one day when I took him to the shops to buy his lunch. We went to all the places that he wanted to go to, and at the end of it, he stopped for his usual sandwich and coke. Unfortunately, the vending machine that he normally used was out of stock of his coke. And the sandwich lady wasn't there. Her business had closed. Billy was not happy. He swore, he bit his hand, he kicked the stand where the shop was, and it took him around 20 minutes to calm him down. When he finally let me talk to him properly, 
I showed him the vending machine had a different flavor of Coke. It was vanilla Coke, but it was still Coke. I asked Billy if he wanted to try it. To start with, he said no and threatened to shoot me. And then he looked again and he said he would like to try it. He put the money in the slot, waited for his Coke to make its way to the exit chamber. Then he pulled it out, tapped it on the top like I showed him, and then he opened it. First, he smelt it, as you do, and then he took a large sip. His eyes lit up like a Christmas tree, and he looked at me, patted me on the shoulder and said, bloody oath, that's good. Now for the battle of the sandwiches. He started to get really anxious when I said we should look for something else to eat. He told me that he wanted his sandwich. I asked him to trust me, and he followed me to a large food court that he never knew existed because he always went to the one tiny shop at the end of the shopping centre. He stepped inside the atrium and straight away said, Where's my sandwich, lady? I led him to a vendor that had sandwiches on the board and asked Billy to ask them for what he wanted. Which he did, telling the worker the specifics, white bread, tomato, cheese, cut once in a triangle. A couple of times the person looked at me from behind the counter and I just nod to confirm the directions from Billy. Once Billy had his sandwich, we found a seat to sit. And it was then Billy started to look around as he ate. The look of wonder in his eyes was fabulous. When he finished, he asked if next week he could try something else. Over the next few weeks and months, we ate from lots of different eateries in the food court. Then we trialled pubs, cafes along the boardwalk, clubs and different food courts. Billy had gained new skills and he had gained an outlook on life that he had never seen before. I look back sometimes and wonder what would have happened if a staff person just kept making decisions for Billy? Would he have come to love eating at a RSL? Would he have made new friends at the club? Or would he have just gone home to eat a cheese and tomato sandwich? By working with Billy rather than making decisions for him, he was able to grow and build skills that he missed out on for such a long time. In another instance, I worked with David. David was quite capable. He could even tell you when a train was coming long before it reached your ears. He could dance like no one else. He could curl himself up into a ball so tight you couldn't see all of his limbs. But David was slow to eat. His cerebral palsy made it difficult for him to hold a spoon or a cup. And David loved his food. It was his favourite time of the day. He enjoyed eating and talking with staff. Unfortunately though, the staff thought he ate too slow and made too much mess. Over time, David lost his ability to be able to eat. His fine and gross motor skills decreased. If he walked with anything in his hands, staff would stop him and take it off him so he didn't drop it. You could see David wasn't happy with this, but he craved time with the staff, so he just let it happen. A new worker came in one day and asked him why he couldn't eat for himself. The staff just said, oh, he's too messy, or it takes too long to eat. Over time, that staff person worked with David again to help him to feed himself. David beamed with pride each time the staff person held his hand and helped him put the spoon to his mouth with food on it. She would massage his hands and wrists and forearms before and after his meals to loosen his muscles. And soon, a mealtime plan was put into place to help David feed himself. Over time... He learnt to eat less messy, and he also learnt to eat within the same time period as his other peers. Doing for David wasn't in his best interest, and it wasn't what he wanted. But because he craved the staff attention, he just let them do it. 
in this instance, doing with had a far greater impact on his health and emotional well-being. Kate, on the other hand, lived independently after acquiring a spinal injury. She could move herself about the house in an electric wheelchair and had some limited arm movements. She had a worker come in each morning to help her with her household tasks such as washing, sweeping and doing the dishes. The staff person would come in and tell her what she needed to do. They gave her a broom to sweep. They instructed on her on how to wash the dishes but refused to help her. After two hours they hadn't even made it to washing the clothes yet because doing the small amount of sweeping and dishes took so long. Her energy drained, she had pains up her arms, her body ached, her head pounded but she was just told to keep going. The worker then left because time was up and she struggled for another four hours to try and get the washing done by herself. After some time, she got up the courage to make a complaint. The organisation told her that it was in her best interest to continue to maintain her skills in this area, otherwise she wouldn't be able to do them in the future if she stopped. Kate found another organisation to come in and help her with these tasks. The staff were wonderful. They asked her what she needed. They helped her to do the smaller amount of tasks or they took turns. Some days Kate was in so much pain that the workers just did the work and allowed her to rest. During this time the workers and Kate talked. They got to know each other, they shared jokes and they worked together as a team. Some days Kate allowed the worker to do for and other days she did with. Either way, the work was done and Kate felt empowered in her own home without feeling drained and unsupported. As you can see, there are many different ways to support a person. You just have to get to know them, ask them questions, think about their goals, think about what it is that they really need, not what you really need, and then do that. One of my favourite quotes for skill building is this. When you cut it for me, write it for me, open it for me, set it up for me, draw it for me, or find it for me, all I learn is that you can do it better than me. My other favourite quote is this. I love this industry. It's not about coming to work, doing an eight-hour shift and leaving. It's so much more than that. For some people, we can be their eyes, their ears, or their hands. Sometimes you need to be the lighthouse, a guiding light, and then sometimes you need to be the lifeboat to get the job done. Make sure you know the difference between the two. That's all I have for you today, but tune in next week for another episode of Day in the Life podcast. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends. And if you'd like to share your story or know someone who would, please contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Day in the Life podcast disability. Have an amazing day and I hope this helps you to help others build the life they choose.